tonight I want to take you on a journey. I want to tell you not only my story from my past, but what I struggled with for 20 years of being a believer. And maybe you could identify with it. I am now a believer for 42 years and thank the Lord that he came along and set me free. But I am a Manhattan girl. I grew up in Manhattan. My father was a nightclub owner in the village and my mom was a nightclub singer. And they wanted to have a baby. And after trying for 12 long years, my mom finally becomes pregnant. But this is 1950. The doctor said it's just, uh, 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 she starts to experience these terrible headaches. The doctors say they're just headaches caused by the pregnancy. They'll dissipate. 1950, no MRIs, no CAT scans. But by the time my mom was five months pregnant, my father would come home and find my mother with a towel wrapped around her head, banging her head against the wall from excruciating pain. They decided to rush my mom to the hospital. She went into a coma, five months pregnant, and the doctors decide to take out this two and a half pound baby girl. What are the odds in 1950 that a two and a half pound baby girl would survive? But God obviously had a plan. But I didn't know that. And some of you don't know the plan that God has for your life. Anyway, they, the day my mother died, my father basically died. He didn't die physically. He died emotionally. And they put me in the New York Foundling Hospital where they put orphans. I have no name on my birth certificate. My name is Baby. So I say, if you say, hey, Baby, I'm like, well, that's my name. And after eight long months in the hospital, being very, very sick, having staph infection, severe case of chicken pox, a nurse decided to name me Maria. My father takes me home. There's no such thing as single parent households in 1950. What, a, what is he going to do with the baby girl? So my father, he, he was so depressed. Depression wasn't diagnosed in 1950. And his best friend was a glass of scotch. He would look out the window and cry for my mother. He would get nannies and that didn't work. And by the time I was two and a half years old, my father decides he's going to put me in a religious boarding school. He figures in this place, my needs were going to be met. I was going to bond with women. There were no women in my life. I was going to learn about God. I was going to be given three square meals a day. I was going to learn my ABCs. And I remember the day driving up to this boarding school, to this convent, and I remember like it was yesterday, the gravel crackling underneath the tires of my father's big gray Chrysler. We get to the front and my father gets out of the car and he takes me out and he takes my little suitcase and he sets it down and he says, Maria, I'll come and see you when I can. And that was very few and far between. Those big convent doors opened and everything my father thought was going to happen didn't happen. The opposite happened. In this place, I was beaten. I would have chunks of hair pulled out of my head. I would be woken up in the middle of the night and put in a dark hallway. When the little girls, they went home every weekend, I didn't. 
I would be given a glass of wine. I was three, four, five, six years old. And I would wake up in bed with somebody that represented God. I'm left-handed. I would be put in a tub of very hot water over and over again. And I would be told, you're a child of the devil, Maria. You're a child of the devil. So you could imagine what I thought about God. But the worst thing was, was I was told that I didn't have a mother because God didn't think I deserved one. And that was the sentence that shaped my life. That was the sentence that carried me all the way into my years of being saved. When the little girls would come back from going home, we had a bed dresser, bed dresser. That was our world. And they would open their suitcase and their little suitcase smelled like love. And they would take out the little uh, perfumes or the little sachets that their mommy gave them. They would take out little cards that had love notes on them, which said, see you next weekend. But I wasn't looking at the cards and I wasn't looking at the perfume. I was looking at the lipstick mark on their cheek because that lipstick mark was the seal. That lipstick mark said, nobody's going to wake you up in the middle of the night and give you wine. Nobody's going to put you in a dark hallway. Nobody's going to stick you in a tub of very hot water. Nobody's going to say those horrible things to you. By the time I was 10 years old, my father shows up unexpected. And he discovers the abuse. I have black eyes and I have marks all over me. And now he takes me home. We lived in Manhattan. And we happened to live in the Chelsea area of Manhattan. And at that time, it was a very, very tough area. Things have changed, boy, in the last 60 some odd years. And um, now I am put in a co-ed school. And I had never been around boys before. And I'm a new girl in the school, and because I'm the new girl, the boys like me. Because the boys like me, the girls hate me. So every day, the girls were like Philistines. They were the tallest, biggest girls you ever saw in your life. They would chase me home every single day. I became like an Olympic runner. I would get, I would run home, I would get in that apartment, I'd be like... And as my father always asked me, how's everything, Maria? And I'd always say, fine, daddy, just fine. Because my father had his glass of scotch looking out the window crying for my mother. I didn't want to upset him. I became the mother. You know how it is when you, when you live in a family where it's very fragile and you don't want to do anything to cause anything. So you take on that kind of... Uh, perspective that you're the one that has to hold things together until one day the Philistines caught me and they ripped my blouse and with my left hand I held my blouse closed and with my right hand I had to fight back but I didn't know how to fight then and I say then because I did learn to fight I went to hit that girl I didn't know that you closed your thumb I had my thumb opened, and when I went up, my thumb snapped back, and it broke. But I couldn't go home and tell my father that my thumb was broken, because he was too busy looking out the window, crying for my mother. 
And I say this, my thumb had to heal on its own. To this day, it's very swollen. It, it swells up. There's certain pain. And I say that there are things in our life that have never been set right. There are things in our life. There's a certain movement. There's a certain smell. There's a certain song. There's a certain moment that brings you back to that place where your life was broken. But I'm here to tell you tonight that although it's a process, and it is a process, God wants to heal every single broken place in our lives, step by step, if you would let him. Anyway, I became like those Philistines. I became tough, just like them, fighting in the street. At 10, 11 years old, I was going into liquor stores buying cheap wine, 99 cent, Gypsy Rose, Thunderbird. And I would be lying in the streets of what we call the now chic uh, meatpacking district, but it wasn't chic then. They would literally slaughter the animals and the blood of the animals would run down the street onto the sidewalk. And here I was, 10 years old, a little girl, 11, 12 lying unconscious in the street, and I never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I started to smoke weed. I started to do all sorts of drugs, ups, downs. You name it, I did it. Started to snort cocaine, and now it's the, 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 the 60s. Now it's acid and, and masculine and all these sorts of things. I've even done Thorazine. Just crazy. And by the time I was 18 years old, I was sticking a needle in my arm. You, I, I, you have the pictures. Uh, uh, years after my, um, I got saved, my drug dealer got saved. And he had these pictures. And the Holy Spirit said that I preserved these pictures so, you, so, so, so the world could see what I could do in a life. I've overdosed on heroin three times. I've been arrested. I've been hit by a car. I tried to commit suicide. But God obviously had a plan. I found my father dead in, in his apartment. And um, I was so hard by then that I did not even care that my father was dead. All I cared about was that he was going to leave me a lot of money. That was it. Money, money, money was going to be the answer. Money was going to make my life better. Money was going to be the answer to this vacuum that I felt inside. So they had to drill through the door because the bolt was locked on the inside. And here's my father dead. The first thing I go for is, are his sleeping pills and his liquor. And then I call the police. Money. I worked for Bergdorf Goodman. I did famous people's makeup. Was in the centerfold of the New York Daily News, the Sunday News for underground clubs. I was going to clubs since I was 12 years old. Here I am now, uh, 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 19, 20 years old. Like an it girl, never waited online to get to a club. I even found a club uh, uh, open on a Sunday afternoon. I used to dance in a club a few blocks from here. It was called the sanctuary. I thank God now I dance in the sanctuary, the real sanctuary. Because the world is just a cheap imitation. It's just this cheap imitation. It doesn't satisfy. 
So I get all this money. And what do I do? I do what anybody would do that doesn't, is empty and hopeless. I, I buy everything the world says you need in order to be happy. I get a full set of designer luggage. Come on. You know you've arrived when you have a full set of designer luggage. I bought these humongous diamond earrings. I promise you, they could have stopped air traffic control in Kennedy or LaGuardia Airport. They were like massive. When I turned, lights would like, but it wasn't the light. I had more chains than Mr. T. I had designer everything. If it was in the magazine, I had it, but I was so empty. And I meet a man named Michael Durso. And I fell in love with him. He was so gorgeous. He's still so gorgeous. And he was kind and he was loving. And he wasn't crazy like I was. He, he didn't shoot up heroin. He, he just did coke and, 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 and smoked weed and did two and all second alls, quaaludes. But he didn't shoot up. So he was like a, a, a good citizen. So I felt like I hit the jackpot. Like I was with a good man. He worked for his family. And we started to see each other. And after a while, we decide we're going to live together. So we get this beautiful apartment in Brooklyn on Ocean Parkway, studio apartment with a balcony. And of course, we go to Bloomingdale's, nothing but the best. And we order this beautiful furniture. And uh, they're going to deliver it in about two weeks. So we decide to go on this 10-day vacation to Mexico. So here we go. We're going to paradise. I smuggle in about $3,000 worth of Coke. I won't tell you how I did it. And um, it's amazing the things, uh, how creative we could be. If we could just use that creativity for the Lord. And I have my designer luggage. I have my chains. I have my Norma Kamali bathing suit. It was on the cover of Cosmopolitan. I have the man of my dreams, and we go to paradise. So we get to paradise, and the first day I feel empty. I can't understand. Figure, let me snort a little more coke. Let me smoke a little more weed. Let me, you know, let me do something that's going to like heighten my, my, my emotions, my feelings. But the emptiness wouldn't go away. So it's the second day this 10-day vacation, and I'm feeling more empty, and by the third day, and the fourth day, and now it's the fifth day, and I am so empty, I feel like something is screaming on the inside of me. I feel like there's a vacuum, like a chasm, and I could actually hear the echo of my emptiness, and I was just screaming on the inside for somebody to help me. So my boyfriend goes out for a walk on the beach one night, and I decide to stay in the room. And as I'm in the room, I decide I'm going to talk to God. Now, I didn't talk to him the way we talked to him. I was angry at God. I hated God. I thought God hated me, so I hated him. And I start to curse him out. And I called him every name in the book. And as I'm shaking my fist at this God, 
I started to say, what kind of God are you? What kind of God are you? What is this thing called life chasing her tail? And this holy God that should have struck me dead. He said my name. The name that's not on my birth certificate. It wasn't an audible voice. It was an internal voice. It was a voice that filled me all the way up. And he said, Maria, he said, give me your life before it's too late. I knew that I knew it was God. I didn't know his name was Jesus. I had never heard of being born again. And my boyfriend walks back in the room. Now, I had instant conviction of sin. I knew my filthy mouth was wrong. I knew my string bikini or lack thereof was wrong. I knew the drugs were wrong. I knew sleeping with my boyfriend was wrong. I didn't have to go to discipleship class for 15 years to say, oh, is that wrong? I want to say this, guys. We need to stop playing with God. The Holy Spirit... Is the same Holy Spirit that he was in 1975 when that voice spoke to me. So my boyfriend walks back in the room and I said, Michael, when we go back home, will you go to church with me? Now the poor guy was gone 20 minutes. He said, church. He said, you need a smoke a joint, Maria. You need to get high. I said, I don't need I don't need a joint. I need God in my life. And he's looking at me like doo 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 doo. <laughs> Twilight zone. So it's the next day. And guess what? The shop was closed. There was no more activity. I didn't want to do anything. I wanted to go home and find the voice. That voice changed everything for me. So, Michael's planning on dumping me. You stuck with me, boy. I'm planning on dumping him. And when I'm leaving this paradise, they offer me a job. They said, listen, you're not married. Why don't you stay behind? You could become a hostess. And you get free room and board and you make tips and blah, 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 blah. And I turned to my boyfriend and I said, that's the devil. He doesn't want me to go home and go to church. How did I know that? I was an instant spiritual genius. Yes, I was. So we go home to the apartment with the two mattresses and a telephone. And I have to call somebody. But I don't know any Christians. I don't know anybody that felt like me. All my friends were crazy people just like I was. So I call my friend Barbara. I said, Barbara, I got to talk to you. She goes, no, no, I got to talk to you. I go, no, I got to talk to you. She goes, no, I got to talk to you. Go back and forth. And finally she says, hurry up. I said, Barbara, I need God in my life. And Barbara says, praise God. The Lord. I, I feel like it was yesterday. I said, 
praise the who? I never heard that expression before. And I assure you, when I left, before I left, Barbara, she wasn't talking like that. She says, Maria, while you were gone, some hippie, thank God for the hippies. Because you know us church people, we're busy going to Bible study and choir practice. And we just step over the people Jesus died for. She says, some hippie preached the gospel to her and 30 of our friends. Wait. She said, we accepted Christ and we held hands. And we prayed for you and Michael in Mexico. Guess what night that was? The night that voice spoke to me in that hotel room. Listen, I am here to tell you that God is a God that answers prayer. And your prayers go where you can't go. God is never not working. Don't ever give up praying and calling on the Lord. Anyway, she said, there's a service tonight in this little Pentecostal church in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. She said, do you want to go? I was like, yes. My boyfriend didn't want to go, but he figured he would come with me so we could resume business as usual. I was going to get this out of my system. So we go to this little Pentecostal church. It was tiny. And the pastor, I mean, nothing was cool about the church. The, the, the song leader was like Lawrence Welk. And you know, we were cool. We were cool. We didn't have church clothes. My boyfriend had a black leather suit with fringes. And yellow platform boots. And five earrings and a long feather. He was very handsome. My pants were so tight, I think I had to put Crisco on my legs to get them on. I had black eyelashes in the corner, black lipstick, black things on my eyelids. You could have went skating on my eyelids. They were so full of gloss. And my boyfriend was there and he was like, you got to be kidding me, Maria. These people are weird. Like we weren't weird. <laughs> Let me just say this very quickly. You know, you come to church and you know, sometimes the church wants you all cleaned up. So when we walked in, like the people were like looking at us, they were afraid of us. It's like going to a hospital and the, you know, the nurse goes, Ugh, come back when you look better. <laughs> no, I'm coming here because I'm sick. Because the church is a Holy Ghost hospital. So anyway. So through the whole service. I, I'm, I'm like clueless. He's clueless. But the pastor said if you were to die tonight. Would you know where you would spend eternity? Before I go on. That's a question for every single one of us in this room. If you were to die tonight. Would you know where you would spend eternity? And I knew that I knew I was going to hell. We went to, I went to the altar. I was sobbing. 
And when I looked to my right, my boyfriend was kneeling next to me, sobbing and weeping. The pastor got the anointing oil. He anointed us with oil. I was nervous. I saw the exorcist. I thought my head was going to spin around a few times. But he said, you're going to be known as the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And no truer words have been spoken. We went home that night. We separated the two mattresses. We threw out all the drugs, drug paraphernalia, music, clothes, magazines. We gave God our whole life. Not the part that we thought needed a little fixing up. Listen, God's in the demolition business. Okay, he's not in the patchwork business. And we got married on a rainy Monday in City Hall. And three years ago, 2015, we were married 40 years. We got married in our church. Our three sons are pastors, plus our fourth son. He's like our adopted son. He walked me down the aisle. Our three sons married us. Our eight grandchildren were in the wedding. Do we have those? Yeah, we have them. See them all? I'm broke. Just look at that. I'm broke. God has been so good. But let me get to... That's Photoshop. Thank you, Jesus. You know what? That's how we look in God's eyes. We're Photoshopped. He sees no blemish and no wrinkle. Though your sins are as scarlet, he makes them white as snow. But let me get to my point, why I wrote the book. Because instantly I was delivered from drugs. My external behaviors changed immediately. But what didn't change immediately was how I felt internally. Those feelings of low self-worth and this led me to this very distorted view of God. And, and it would take decades, not a week, not a month. It would take decades for me to believe that I was loved and accepted by God and that God could use somebody like me. And it had nothing to do with what God was doing in my life because I had a great husband who loved me. I had three sons. We were called into the ministry with the first church that comes out of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. But I oftentimes say great things can happen to you, but unless they happen in you, they won't change you. See, I knew in my mind that Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so, but when I put my head on the pillow at night, I felt that he was never pleased with me. See, knowing something in your head as opposed to knowing something in your heart is light years apart. It's like knowing somebody loves you. It's the difference between having an acquaintance and a close personal relationship. Knowing in your heart is the game changer. Your heart seals the deal. Now it's been noted that there's this 18 inch distance, this foot and a half between the head and the heart. And for me, I always felt like there was sludge between what I believed and what I received, although I couldn't articulate it. Now in 1991, medical literature discovered that the heart has its own brain. In other words, the heart has a mind of its own. 
and the brain and the head and the brain and the heart send messages to one another, but they don't necessarily agree with one another. That's why we say things like, my mind is telling me one thing, but my heart is telling me something else. Think about it. The brain in your head is your logic. It's your cranial brain. That's, but the brain in your heart is the seat of your emotions. And oftentimes our emotions trump our logic. That's why we get in relationships we know we shouldn't be in. That's why we buy the shoes with the little red bottoms that we know we can't afford. So think about the implications of the brain in the heart. It has the ability to think, has the ability to make decisions, has the ability to store memory. Because the brain and the heart, just like the brain and the head, has DNA. And there's things that are etched on the inside. So it remembers words like, you don't deserve. You're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. And the Bible says in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinketh in his heart. Not as a man thinketh in his head. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, not trust in the Lord with all your head. The Bible clearly differentiates between the head and the heart. Now, I know in this church, you have left church feeling like you could scale a wall. You take your superwoman cape or your superman cape out of your pocket and you put it on because Pastor Carter or Pastor Teresa or Pastor David said, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You're like, that's right. That's right. That's right. God is for me. But then Wednesday comes. What happened? It's as though the excitement behind that life giving truth like seemed to fizzle out. By Wednesday you're saying, is God for me? Can I do all things? Your problem wasn't believing when the pastor was preaching you weren't saying you're a liar I cannot do all things no you were saying yes but by Wednesday the words that have been etched in the DNA of our hearts it has like little hands and it says you know what that's for them that's not for you don't receive it so we fold up our little cape we put it back until we're charged again on the next Sunday right Listen, I thought God was setting me up to fail. I thought if you liked me, there was something wrong with you. I I tell the story. This probably doesn't happen here because you do teach the deeper things of God. But we had a woman that first got saved in our church. This is when we were in our old building. And after a few years, she started to change the way she looked. and, And she came to me and she said, listen, this church is good for beginners. She says, but I found a church that teaches the deeper things of God. So, you know, I'm very visual. I'm picturing, you know, we're a church with training wheels. And, uh, and she, she's on the motorcycle of the spiritual journey of life. I mean, she's just going to, you know, she's just going to excel. And even though she left the church, she never left the pew. She sat next to me every single Sunday. And it didn't matter that we were baptizing 50 people, 60 people, sometimes 100 people, every six weeks, eight weeks. I couldn't enjoy what was being done because her voice 
just confirmed what I always felt. I always felt this sense of shame. And you know what? The definition of shame is not doing something wrong. It's feeling like you are something wrong. So she sat with me every single Sunday in my head. And I think about how, you know, who sits with you? Who, who follows you around? Who's there when you're going on the job interview or when you're in college? Is it the teacher that from the fifth grade said something derogatory to you? Was it the parent? Was it the sibling? Was it the friends that didn't invite you to the party that has just totally been etched on the DNA of your heart and you just feel like you don't belong? Think about the Old Testament, how God's people responded to his kindness Remember, there was a Red Sea. He said, Red Sea, no problem. I'll make a road. Too cold, no problem. I'll be a pillar of fire by you at night. Too hot, no problem. I'll be a cloud by day. No food, no problem. I'll deliver man. I deliver a right to your door. No water, no problem. I'll turn a rock into a gigantic water tank. But see, no matter what God did for them, every time they got to the next obstacle, they felt like God was setting them up to fail. They would say things like, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? See, many of us have seen God do things for us, but then the next obstacle happens and we feel like the other shoe is going to drop. So we can't totally trust the Lord. I love this song that they sang earlier. I got to trust the Lord. I'm going to keep on trusting the Lord. Maybe you can help me. There were slaves for 435 years. 14 generations born into slavery. But they think God is setting them up to fail because slavery was etched. Failure was etched. And the same words that have destroyed us God wants to use his word to rewrite and erase, erase those things. Remember when God sent them into the promised land? Sadly, it, they think God's setting them up to fail. It's not the external things that were their problem. It was the internal things. It wasn't the giant without. It was the giant within. They were never chased or opposed or mocked. But their past was present with them. And along with that gigantic fruit that took two of them to carry on their shoulders, they were carrying around this gigantic sense of fruitlessness. And what they knew to be true in their head and what they saw with their eyes couldn't stand up to what they felt in their heart. It had nothing to do with that 500-mile journey that they had just taken. It was the 18-inch journey. And if you remember anything tonight, truth be told, the walk to the promised land is not horizontal. It's vertical. If you conquer this, you will conquer everything. You Once you believe here that you're loved by God, there's nothing that you won't be able to do. Well, Paul prays, the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened. Then you'll know 
the hope to which you were called. Well, I had an eye-opening experience about 20 years ago. I was asked to do the Brooklyn Tabernacles Women's Conference. That was a big deal. I was nervous. And I started to pray, God, give me a deep word. I need something deep. I have to impress them. Show me who the 666 is, God. The four horsemen. I'm good. And of course, God doesn't answer those proud prayers. And weeks and weeks and weeks pass. And I hear nothing from God. And now it's close to the conference. And I'm like, okay, God, anything, just anything. I need something to say. And I'm fluffing up my comforter one morning. And I hear the Holy Spirit say to me, I want you to ask them, do you believe God really loves you? I said, what? You want me to ask the people from the Brooklyn Tabernacle if I believe God really loves them? I mean, like that's like kindergarten, God. It's a song. They probably recorded it. And then he said to me, Maria, do you believe? Do you believe I really love you? And I had a meltdown. I had a total meltdown. Because I realized that that one foundational truth that we are unconditionally loved by God was the very thing that had cracked my foundation because I didn't believe it. And he said to me, he gave me a vision of a choir. He said, you see the choir? They're all singing the same song, swaying the same way. But see, some of them are saying, Lord, I'm singing. Do you love me now? And then there's another group that are saying, because he loves me, I sing. See, in church, we're all doing the same thing. But some of us are saying, Lord, I joined that ministry. Do you love me now? And then there's another group that say, because he loves me, I joined the ministry. He told me, he told me to open up to where Mary of Bethany is. And first time we see her, she's sitting at Jesus's feet. She's empty handed. Her sister Martha comes out of the kitchen like a lunatic, accuses her. What does Jesus do? He defends her. Second time we see her, the Bible says she pours just about a pint of ointment on his feet. Judas represents the devil. What does he do? He accuses her, but Jesus defends her. Third time we see her, after the resurrection it says it's um, of Lazarus her brother it's two days before the Passover and the Bible says that she broke the bottle and now she anoints his head and the Bible says the apostles represent the saints accuse her what does Jesus do he defends her notice every time she tries to take a step closer to Jesus A familiar voice accuses her. Every time the familiar voice accuses her, what does Jesus do? He defends her. Notice also that when she was empty-handed, he didn't say, really, Mary, really? Empty-handed? 
Really? You only read the daily bread today? Really? Really? You didn't read 10 chapters? Really? When she poured only a pint, he didn't say, really, Mary, really only a pint. He defended her as vehemently when she broke that bottle as when she was empty-handed. He was always her defender. And Jesus is our defender. He is not our accuser. And as we receive that, we'll be able to then walk a little bit more towards him. Because surrender is a pint at a time. As you realize who Jesus is for you, you're then going to be able to surrender your life to him. I want to end with this story very quickly. When I was a little girl, one of the years, my father decided to put me in camp. And I was grateful because you know what happened to me in the summertime. So I was put in this camp, and the camp counselor, she loved me. She just loved me. I guess she might have known my background. She might have known that I didn't have a mom, and she loved me. And she took my little cot, and she put it next to her bed. And she always tried to do these kind things for me. But because of what happened to me, I couldn't allow her to love me. I always had my hands up. Like, like resist. That's how it is with some of you. You've been hurt. You've been hurt bad. You've been betrayed. You've been rejected. So somebody comes along and they want to love you. First and foremost, God. But what do we do? We have our hands up. I couldn't allow her to love me. So at the end of the camp year, they had this tradition and it was called Queen for a Day. And whoever picked the Queen of Hearts card was going to be queen for a day. They were going to get a little cape and a little crown. And they were going to get a, an ice cream sundae. They were going to be special. They were going to carry them around and make a big deal about them. And the camp counselor, her name was Miss Barbara. She wanted me to be queen for a day. So she's cheating. When she went to the other little girls, she kind of had the Queen of Hearts card down. But when she got to me, she kind of lifted it up. And she was looking at the card, and she was looking at me, and she was looking at the card, and she was looking at me, and everything in her eyes were saying, take the card, Maria, take the card. Everything in me wanted to take the card. I was going to be queen for a day, me. I was going to be special. But in the same instant that I felt take the card, was the same instant I felt like you can't take that card. You don't even have a mother. God doesn't even think you deserve a mother. So I took another card. And that's what we do in life. We'd rather take another card than think they're going to be let down. Well, 
20 years ago, which was 40 years after that event happened to me. I never remembered that event. And I'm preaching in North Carolina and I remember. And for some reason, I start to tell the story. I was with a woman from my church so she could verify. And all of a sudden, a woman comes from the back and she walks down the aisle. She's not Miss Barbara. But I'm in the middle of speaking and she's standing in the front and she's like messing up because she's not supposed to be there. She's messing the flow. And she's holding something in her hand. And after I couldn't ignore her anymore because she wouldn't go away, I bend down and I say to her, what are you doing? What are you doing? And she says, when I was leaving for the conference today, the Holy Spirit told me, go in your deck of cards and take out the Queen of Hearts card. She said, God, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. She said that she got in the car and she drove down her driveway up the road. And the Holy Spirit said, I said to go back and get the Queen of Hearts card. See, although I forgot that story, God didn't forget that story. God hasn't forgotten anything that has been done to you. And God wants to right every single wrong. He does. He wants to right every single wrong. And tonight, the Holy Spirit is telling some of you, take the card. Take the card. Some of you need to take the card of salvation. You've never been born again. The Bible doesn't say you have to be Protestant, Catholic, Episcopalian, Jewish. It says you must be born again. And some of you need to stop sabotaging the different things that God has put before you. He's telling you, take the card. Look at what it says. Even if our own hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. He's greater than how you feel. The Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. For what does torment? Some of us are tormented. What does torment have to do with love? He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He says, you didn't choose me. <laughs> I chose you. I started this relationship. You only love me because I first loved you. He says, you're not orphans. You've been adopted, sons and daughters. If you're here today and this word has spoken to you, I want you to stand to your feet. Just stand to your feet. Don't be ashamed. Some of you don't even realize that that's your issue. Some of you don't even realize that that is a deep-seated thing in your heart. You know what the Holy Spirit told me? In the book of Jude, it says, live in the love of God. There was a time I couldn't look in the mirror. I would have to smudge it. I hated myself. Some of you have self-hatred here tonight. Even though you're beautiful, you have this self-hatred. You have this image of yourself because somebody else 
has told you how you should feel about yourself. You know what you have to do? You got to live in the love of God. You got to look in the mirror. You got to clear it away and say, you know what? God loves me. He loves me. We got to allow the word of God to become a cast on our broken heart so that the same words that have destroyed us can be words of life that'll build us up. You guys are beautiful. So beautiful. God has a reckless love for you. He has an overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love. And there's no lie that he doesn't want to tear down and destroy and dismantle. Because he gave his life for you on Calvary. If you're here tonight and you've never accepted Christ, or you've accepted Christ and you've walked away, I want you to raise your hand right where you are. Thank you, thank you. Wow, tons of hands. Let's just pray as a group. Lord Jesus, I give you my life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you that you're going to love all my sins away. Come and live inside of me by the power of the Holy Spirit and make me new. I surrender everything. Be Lord and master of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.